the passions of your heart and the pursuits of your life advertise how you view the world, how you view yourself, and how you view your God. Whatever or whomever it is that is at the center of your life. You see, everyone from Fort Smith to Pakistan, everyone on the globe, to some degree, has an understanding of the world. They have a way they, in which they view the world and how it should function. Everyone has a hardwired dictionary in their hearts that they carry around that defines, or at least in their own minds, what truth is. And with it, we carry around a philosophy of how we come to know that truth and determine if there really is an ultimate truth that is universally applied. Once we accept whatever that truth is and who is accountable to that truth, we then form a moral standard for how that truth should be upheld and obeyed. But when that standard of morality or truth is crossed or violated, we then discover what we believe and what we really think about evil and injustice in the world, and perhaps what we believe about sin against God really is. Author Greg Wells once wrote a description of what he believes characterizes the mainstream worldview here in the West, in places like America, where the God of the Bible is largely absent from the center of most people's lives. He says this, quote, The modernized world of the West is coldly impersonal and anonymous. And because it has been emancipated from the divine, it is a world in which dark human impulses have no restraints. We recognize no outside authorities as larger and more compelling than our own inward desires. This gives us an enormous sense of exhilaration. But soon, we also realize that without restraints, societies fall apart. They become dangerous. We fear those who desire to bring us harm. We especially fear them in the technologically brilliant age because their powers to do harm have been magnetized many times over. It is one thing to be terrorized by a lone gunman. It is something entirely different to be preparing as we now are for a possible terrorist attack that employs a biological weapon or a small nuclear device in one of our great urban centers. Is this the end to which the Enlightenment claimed we were all progressing? What kind of progress is this? It is painful, difficult, threatening kind of world that we inhabit now. Although it is filled with options, opportunity, and plenty. It is both of these things at the same time, and yet, despite its plenty, it remains 
a place, at least here in the West, where the human spirit is ill at ease. It's not at home. It's haunted by the sense that it was made for something more than buying and selling. Television and sleek cars, vacation homes and investment accounts. Our creation in the image of God makes the human spirit restive in the middle of this substitute paradise we call the West. Indeed, as Augustine once observed, it is restless until it finds its rest in God who made it. The story of the West, in many ways, is the story of this restiveness. Restiveness. That was a new word that I learned this week in reading Mr. Wells's book. Restive means a description of someone who is unable to keep still or silent. We might even tell our children that they are fidgety. And one who becomes increasingly difficult to control, especially because of impatience, dissatisfaction, or boredom. One dictionary source said that to be restive is likened to a frantic cat trying to run on a hot tin roof in the heat of summer. Well, ever since the fall in Genesis chapter 3, where the first man sinned against God, we now live in a dangerous world that acts out on its sinful impulses. It refuses to bow in humble obedience to the universal standard of morality and truth. We now live in a world full of pain and evil that tries to do whatever it can to replace God as our center with the egotistical self of man. And what are we left with? One author has said it this way, quote, the most painful experience of modern consciousness is the loss of center. In other words, when you remove God from the center, you will inevitably unravel any hope of knowing why you exist on this earth. Remove God from the center and man will begin to call good evil and evil good. Remove God from the center and man will begin to worship the creature rather than the creator. And it's in this experience, this is the reality we live in, where our souls are restive in this dangerous and perverse world, struggling day in and day out, Sunday to Saturday, having this restlessness of the soul. And the Bible says that all mankind, in their natural state, does not seek God. The Apostle Paul described the depravity of the whole human race in this way. Romans chapter 3, verses 10 to 18. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. 
All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. This, beloved, is the world we live in. Instead of finding our rest, our security, and our hope in God, with God as our center, we are left running around like a frantic cat on a hot tin roof. So, what do the passions of your heart and the pursuits of your life advertise how you view the world? What do they reveal about who or what is at the center of your life? This morning, we'll be looking in Scripture at a snapshot of one man's life that reveals who his center was and how he ran to it for constant refuge. Please open your Bibles to Psalm 27. Psalm 27. If you're using the chair Bibles provided... That should be found on page 262, 262, Psalm 27. This is the word of God. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. And I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord. Do I seek? Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. O you who have been my help, cast me not off. Forsake me not, O God of my salvation. For my father and mother have forsaken me, 
but the Lord will take me in. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and they breathe out violence. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. This is God's word. Before we read verse 1, you'll notice in the superscription, so when you're reading the Psalms and you see a heading under typical English title, that is a part of the inspired Word of God. And it usually gives you an idea of the context of which the psalm was written. Now you'll notice in Psalm 27, it's actually very short. I like short and easy ones. It just says, a psalm of David. And this is thinking about the anointed king of Israel, David. He reigned for 40 years and would eventually succeed King Saul, which was Israel's first anointed king. David was the youngest of eight boys. His dad was Jesse the Bethlehemite. And he had a mom, but the Bible doesn't tell us her name. Doesn't mean she's not important. We'll just find out in heaven. If you'd like to read more about David's life, if you want to kind of just amp up, we're going to be in five psalms in the month of January. And three out of the five, if I remember correctly, are written by David. So if you want to kind of renew and refresh your memory on who on earth David is, you can read 1 Samuel 16 through the end of 1 Samuel. Then read all the way through 2 Samuel, the whole book, if you've really got some time on your hands. 1 Kings chapters 1 and 2, and then all of 1 Chronicles. But here in Psalm 27, we're actually not told of any kind of time-stamped details about when this psalm was written. So we're not exactly sure when David penned this. Now, it is quite possible that it could have been written sometime around 1 Samuel 21, when David and his men had asked for resources from Ahimelech, the priest. But then they were kind of later ratted out, and Saul and his men began pursuing David. Uh, As you may recall, King Saul was vehemently jealous of David because God had found a new man, showing that no one is irreplaceable. David was a man after God's own heart, and Saul was disqualified. And so Saul and his men were wanting David's Neck. You can read more about this wilderness pursuit in 1 Samuel 22-24. to 24. Nonetheless, at the end of the day, we're still really not sure when this psalm was written. There are no proper names in this psalm. There are no proper names of places in this psalm. But we do have some key clues as to the type of men that David is up against and what David does in response to find protection and hope. So this morning, to help guide us through the psalm, our passage will be broken up into three sections as we'll walk through it together by asking three distinct but related questions. I'll give you the questions one at a time and then respond with an answer from the text of Scripture. Just a forewarning, question one 
takes much longer to get through with questions two and three. So I don't want you to be overwhelmed or, yeah, you get the point. You've been under my preaching long enough. Question number one. What should you do when you're afraid of your enemies? What should you do when you're afraid of your enemies? That's verses one to six. Answer, resolve to seek the Lord and delight in who he is. Resolve to seek the Lord and delight in who he is. In this psalm, David may not have given us any proper names, but he does indicate to us a common experience that David encountered during his life. David was described as a man after God's own heart and a man who would reign as king over God's people. But David's life, with as many victories as he had, also had many trials come with it. He speaks in this psalm multiple times about those who are his enemies. Notice verses 6 and 11 with me. Psalm 27, verse 6. He says, And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. Look at verse 11. He says, Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Uh, These enemies who opposed David opposed him with utter hatred and deceit. They were, in fact, dangerous men. Verse 12 says they breathed out violence. Notice the following verses that will basically describe more about these men. Verse 2, he mentions them as evildoers assailing him to eat up his flesh. He also calls them his adversaries, verse 2, and foes. This speaks of these men's intent to devour him like wild animals, consuming him to the point of utter destruction. They want to remove David off the map, and they want to remove David from the people's memory. Verse 3, he then paints a picture of them being a very large group of enemies by mentioning an army encamped against him, uh, with war arising against him. Uh, This speaks about the magnitude of this opposition, uh, demonstrating that it isn't merely between him and one other person, but a whole mob of people. But then notice verse 12. This really speaks about how dark these men's hearts really were. This will reveal to you the type of assaults and attacks they tried to shred David's reputation with. Look at verse 12. David says, Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have arisen against me, and they breathe out violence. Friends, whether you realize this today or not, Spreading false testimony about another person is an abomination to God. To deliberately create, make up, 
tolerate by gossiping fabricated stories about another person in order to smear their character in the mud is pure evil. It's not just wrong. It's not just a mistake. It is evil. In fact, Proverbs 6, verse 19, that's a good one to remember. Proverbs 6, 19 clearly states, God hates a false witness who breathes out lies. It wrongly represents what God is like. Parents, you teach your children how to tell the truth because God always tells the truth. This is the clear teaching of both the Old and the New Testaments. Bearing false witness is forbidden by the Ten Commandments. Exodus 20, verse 16. Making a charge against someone without the proper evidence of two or three witnesses is directly opposed to the teaching of our Lord. I would encourage you to write down a few of these references. Deuteronomy 19.15. That's Deuteronomy 19.15. Matthew 18.16. Matthew 18.16. And then 1 Timothy 5, verse 19. Deuteronomy 19.15. Matthew 18.16. 1 Timothy 5.19. So when you hear a rumor... You hear a false testimony or one that you're suspicious of. This is the Bible's pedigree. This is the Bible's blueprint for how you determine whether something is true or false. There's some good texts to look at this afternoon. In fact, it was the fabrication and toleration of false testimonies that would spread like wildfire that led to the crucifixion of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Friends, Satan, his love language is slander. Spreading falsehood and false testimony about someone's character is the devil's marketing plan. Brothers and sisters, pray that you and I be used of God to expose falsehood and to speak the truth in love. May we be, by God's grace, an agent for truth-telling and peacekeeping, not falsehood or division. So here in Psalm 27, David reveals to us that the animosity raised against him really began in the hatred of these men's hearts. This means that what David's describing in Psalm 27 was not just some small or mild disagreement between two friends that just couldn't work something out. No, this was at such a deep level of spiritual darkness that these men wanted to destroy David's reputation. And ultimately, they wanted to end his life in death. So what did David do? when he was tempted to be afraid of his enemies. He resolved to seek the Lord and delight in who he is. In verse 1, you'll notice how David begins showing us how he delighted in his God. Notice what he calls God. Verse 1, he calls him my light. 
Again, verse 1, my salvation. Or look at verse 9. He says, O God of my salvation. And then look at verse 1 again, the second half of verse 1. He calls him the stronghold, or your translation might say your hiding place or refuge of my life. I want you to notice first that David calls God his light. What does it mean that God is light? Well, at the very least, it means God's holiness, his impeccable character. In other words, God never lies. You'll never have to worry about God lying. He never has. He never will. God never delights in evil. God cannot even be tempted with evil. For his very nature is the essence of all that is good, of all that is true, of all that is beautiful, of all that is lovely. The Apostle John probably alluded to Psalm 27.1 in his later epistle in 1 John chapter 1, verses 5-7. to 7. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light. And in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. But the fact that David calls God his light also refers to God's ability to guide David. In other words, he is the best. He is the perfect GPS that David could ever have for his life. The Lord, as you recall, led his people in the wilderness years. How? By a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Why? To light their path, to show them where to go next. The psalmist tells us God's word is a light for his people to lean on for their daily decision-making to do his will. I'm sure you're familiar with this psalm. If you're not, this is a good one to teach your children and try to memorize this year. Psalm 119, verses 105. Your word is a, let's just say it together, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. It's an easy one to remember. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. That's why later in Psalm 27, David indicates the need for God to teach him, to guide him, because of the plots of the enemies that wanted to see him fail. Look at Psalm 27, verse 11. He says, Teach me your way, O God, or O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Well, then in verse 1, David goes on to call God his salvation and his stronghold. If you take these two terms together, they form a picture of a deliverer, a rescuer who provides safety, protection, and really confidence in the midst of danger in despair. David was no stranger to danger. Though he was God's man, he would not assume the throne of God's kingdom 
without a fight from God's enemies. Just like any of us, David faced times where he was tempted to be afraid. Afraid for his family. Afraid for his job. Afraid for his very life. But here in Psalm 27, what does David say about his fears? Look at verse 1 again. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? David, in essence, is saying this. These men oppose a threat to my life, but someone greater, someone more powerful, and someone more trustworthy is on my side. It's almost like a fifth grader on the school playground going up to the small fifth grader and saying, hey, I bet you my dad could beat up your dad. The little guy comes out on the basketball court and says, do you know who my dad is? The bully goes, no. What does it matter? My dad's the undefeated heavyweight boxing champion of the world, and he has a perfect knockout record. That's who my dad is. David looks at his enemies when he's tempted to be afraid, and then he reminds himself who his dad is. Who is in his corner? He looks to his God. And his fears that look like mountains become anthills like that. John Calvin said, weighing as it were in scales the whole power of earth and hell, David accounts it all lighter than a feather and considers God alone as far outweighing them all. Another commentator said, one almighty is mightier than all mighties. Brothers and sisters, having a small view of God will not be a match for Satan's fearful temptations. Cheesy cliches, nursery rhymes, and theology derived from Hallmark cards or pop Christian radio will not serve you well to fight spiritual warfare. If you and I do not hold fast to the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, Ephesians 6, 17, we will be like shooting plastic Nerf guns at the cannons of Satan's army. Brothers and sisters, you go in to fight this spiritual battle with confidence in your human strength, you and I will get destroyed. You see, we have to understand, first and foremost, not who we are, not even who our enemy is, but who our God is. We should be getting our biblical teaching from ministries and resources that challenge us in our understanding of God. Not ministries that water down our view of God. Stay away from ministries and television shows and books and even well-meaning Sunday school teachers 
that make God look docile, that makes you feel safe with him, to put God in a box, to paint a picture of God that makes you more comfortable with him rather than the consuming fire that he is. Beloved, if you're going to make any New Year's resolutions this year, resolve to know your God better. Spend time in 2021 studying the attributes of God. His holiness, his righteousness, his love, his sovereignty, his immutability, his aseity, his eternality, and the mysterious wonder of the Trinity. Read books like J.I. Packer's Knowing God or A.W. Pink's The Sovereignty of God. Uh, Read the book of Isaiah, and it's really big. It's 66 chapters, but if you want to kind of skip a bunch and get right to the part where I'm trying to get to is Isaiah chapters 40 to 49. It's really a face-off with Yahweh and all the false gods of the nations. Be amazed again at God's sovereignty over powerful men like Pharaoh in the Exodus or Nebuchadnezzar in the book of Daniel, or Cyrus, king of Persia, in the book of Ezra. And beloved, if you forget anything I just said, spend the rest of your life studying the person work of Jesus Christ, our Lord. You see, Jesus, who is truly God and truly man, came into this dark and dangerous world, but was rejected even by his own people. Betrayed by one of his own disciples. Denied three times by one of his most confident disciples. And eventually abandoned by all of them in his darkest hour. Jesus came as a savior and the refuge for condemned sinners. But he was hated. He was falsely accused. He was pursued by men who breathed out violence. The people he came to save were his enemies. But why? John tells us in John 3 verses 19 to 20 that people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But to those who did receive him, to those who have been born again by the Spirit, he gave the right to become sons and daughters of the Most High God through faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus taught in private and in public that he is the light. He is the way, the truth, and the life, John 14, 6 says, who gives hope for lost sinners who are stuck in darkness to know their God. Jesus said in John 8, verse 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness but will have the light of life. Listen, if you're here today, if you are honest with yourself, you are restive 
in your soul. You're restless as to why you exist on this planet to begin with. And, and you know deep down there has to be more to life than buying and selling television and sleek cars, vacation homes and investment accounts. If that's you here today, dear ma'am, dear sir, listen to my voice. The scriptures tell us the truth about ourselves better than we tell the truth about God. The scriptures tell us this. Apart from God, we are ungodly, we are sinners, and we are enemies of God. But Christ came as a friend of sinners who would die for his very enemies on the cross to pay for all their sins. Our sin of slander. Our sin of gossip. Our sin of tearing people down made in the image of God. Our evil desires, Jesus paid for that. Our idols that we put at the center of our lives instead of God himself, Jesus died for that. And then Jesus rose from the dead. He conquered the grave. And now he sits at the right hand of the Father and he commands us to turn from our sins. To take off those prison clothes of sin and receive Christ's righteous robes by faith. You see, you can't clean yourself up. You keep putting different things at the center of your life that are not God. Eventually, it's going to unravel. And it's going to hit you right in the face. How many times does God have to teach us time and time again? Keep me as the center of your life. And it will be well with your soul. If you don't know this God today, turn to Christ. He is the light of the world that will shed light on a lot of things that have been very confusing to you in your life up to this place. That's the good news. Believe upon him, and by God's grace, you'll become children of light. I want to challenge each one of us here this morning. Who or what is the center of your life today? Who or what is your deliverer? your Savior from your sin? Who or what are you running to for refuge when you're afraid? Well, David tells us who his center was. David tells us what preoccupied his mind, his heart, and his pursuits that kept his fear of his enemies at bay. Notice again verse 4. Look at verses 4 to 6. He says, One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, and to inquire in his temple. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock, and now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me, and I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. So what did David do? 
he was resolved. He made up his mind. He had counted the cost of living life with man at the center versus God at the center, and he wisely chose the latter. Did you notice that phrase he says at the beginning of verse 4? This is like the pop the confetti part of the sermon. This is the juicy stuff. David said, one thing have I asked of the Lord. One thing. One thing. If you only had one thing to ask the Lord to do in your life in 2021, what would the one thing be? Just one. For God to give you a better paying job? To bless you with a happier marriage? Grant you more respect from your peers at work? Bless you with another child? Be given a title or position of authority in your church? Get good grades in school? Experience perfect physical health? See your family get along with each other? Witness your enemies get punished for the evil they did to you or someone you love? Interestingly enough, David could have asked the Lord for many things in his time of trouble, in his time of fear, in his time of despair. He could have even asked God to give him an easier life. Take my problems away. But David focused his one thing on seeking the Lord and delighting in who he is. Treasuring him. Prioritizing him. Meditating on him. Experiencing life with him. And delighting in who he is. Delighting in God's favor over David's life. Delighting in God's goodness over David's life. Delighting in God's sovereign care over David's life. That's what David wanted to marvel in. That's what he wanted to meditate on and be personally acquainted with. Did you catch what he said? All the days of his life. Instead of David becoming overwhelmed by who his enemies are and becoming paralyzed in fear by what they could do to him, David is captivated by an all-consuming passion. He is gripped by one overarching ambition in his life. He is driven by a heart yearning and relentless preoccupation. David simply has his mind made up. At the end of the day, David cares less about who is against him. And he cares a whole lot more about who is most for him. Shouldn't this be the battle cry of every Christian? Shouldn't the pleasure of God and what he thinks matter more 
than the displeasure of man and what man thinks? Romans 8, 31 to 34. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Robert Murray McShane once said, If I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. Yet distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. Back in the fall of this past year, we were in Philippians chapter 3. Maybe you remember that. Philippians chapter 3, we read about the Apostle Paul's conversion and what the Lord did in his heart to transform his life's ambition. And if you recall, it sounds very similar to David's in Psalm 27, right? We read in Philippians 3, starting in verse 7, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on towards the goal for the prize or the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Now we see the Apostle Paul, new covenant follower of Jesus Christ, who we are in the same camp with, with regards to obedience to the Lord. And what do we see? We see the same thing David did in Psalm 27. There's a resolve. There's a determination. There's a staking your life to count for something, to no longer live in the past, dear Christian, and to lean forward to the future, dear brother and sister. Paul sets the example for all Christians to imitate, every one of us. All 88 covenant members of CCBC should be pressing on to be more like Christ, looking forward to the hope we have of one day being with him forever. That means this, that even in times of sickness and suffering, persecution or financial loss, we need to remind one another every week that this world 
is not our home. The writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 13, 13 to 14, Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. In pursuing to know his God and desiring to be in his intimate presence, David was confident that God would be with him all of his days. God would help him in the day of trouble. God would, in his own time, in his own way, put a new song in his mouth and that the Lord would exalt him above his enemies. Brothers and sisters, seeking God implies we are not the center of the universe. And sometimes the Lord brings evil men and evil women, adversaries, opponents, who are like thorns in your side to keep us humble. The fears we face in this life are like God's cards in the mailbox to say, bring your cares to me because I care for you. 1 Peter 5, verse 7. You see, the weaker we become before the Lord, the stronger and more precious the Lord becomes to us. Confidence in God is born when reliance on self dies. Confidence in God is born when reliance on self dies. And when we are made confident in God, as David says in verse 3, we remain focused on what ultimately matters. Verse 4, when we're depending on God to give us boldness, courage, strength, we resolve to seek God and delight in who he is. And we make that the number one ambition with our life. Maybe you ought to create your own personal mission statement this year. Or resolution. Or resolve. In the 18th century, one of the brightest theologians the United States has ever produced was Jonathan Edwards. When he was just a young man in his later teen years and early 20s, he wrote 70 resolutions that would guide and guard his life to have this one thing, devotion to Christ. In Resolution 17, he wrote this, quote, Resolved that I will live so as I shall wish I had done when I come to die. Brothers and sisters, how do you want to be remembered by those who knew you when they're at your funeral. CCBC, 
How do we want our church to be remembered when generations after us look back on the early years of this church plant? What do you want the saints to say in a hundred years about this body? My prayer is that Chaffee Crossing Baptist Church would be full of members who care less about being seen by others and a whole lot more about seeking God and making him known to others. That's why you come to church on Sunday. We don't come to church on Sunday with this I, me, and us, I'm the center of the church mentality. We don't walk in this building to see others and be seen by them. We come to seek God together. We come to know him together so that when we leave those doors and go out to that parking lot, we're equipped to make him known to others. That's why this church exists. Well, David certainly exemplified in Psalm 27 that he was a man after God's own heart. But was it, or what was it, that David asked when he sought the Lord. As he longed to seek God in his presence, what did David pray? Which leads to our second question, question number two. How should you pray when you seek the Lord for his help? How should you pray when you seek the Lord for his help? That's verses 7 to 12. Answer, pray honestly to the Lord and ask for his wisdom to guide you. Pray honestly to the Lord and ask for his wisdom to guide you. In verses 7 to 10, David reveals an honest and confident heart in his prayers to God. In other words, God does not want pretense. He doesn't want you to fake it to make it. He doesn't want you to kind of cloak and reword your vocabulary to make yourself sound more spiritual than you really are. He wants you to come boldly to the throne. And your tears and maybe snot bubbles if it's a really a rough day. And all you've got, bring it to him. Because he already knows what's there. In verse 7, he basically says this, Lord, pay attention to me. Pay attention to my prayer. Have mercy on me. Have compassion on my fears and anxieties. He says in verse 7, hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. Do your prayers sound like that? They should. David does this not to demand something from God as if God owed him something. David's not being irreverent. David's not being prideful. No, it's actually the quite opposite. He's calling on God with such boldness and such urgency because he trusts him like a child would, a loving father. He's tasted and seen that the Lord is good in his past. And he's calling on him again because he trusts him. In verse 8, we read how this honesty from David escalates telling God that he has sought him. He answered the call when God told him to seek him. Listen, if you're here today and you know you've been running from God, 
and deep down, it's become so obvious to you and to everyone around you that the Lord's seeking you out. He's literally quarantined your life. It's like Jonah. It's real bad when pagan sailors know you're running from God. When unbelievers know you're disobeying God, that's really bad. Listen, I have ran from God. I have ignored his promptings. I have muted my conscience when he convicted me. I have said, oh, I want to sleep in another hour instead of seek him in prayer. And you know what my Lord does? The same thing he does for you. Come to me. Come to me. I know you're weary. Come to me. I know you're anxious. Come to me. I know you're afraid. Come to me. I know you feel shameful of the sin you committed. Come to me. Jesus said, come to me. All who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That means we should resist every impulse to sin and obey every impulse to pray. Resist every impulse to sin and obey every impulse to pray. Are you afraid? Then pray. Are you depressed? Then pray. Are you anxious? Then pray. Are you lonely? Then pray. Are you in sin? Then pray. Are you confused on what to do in this next decision? Then pray. Is your heart cold for God? You don't want to seek him. Then tell God to light your heart on fire once again. I like what theologian Derek Kidner says. He will not ask for our love and then withhold his own. When God calls us to seek him, it is not to leave us empty, but to fill us up. David turns up the honesty knob one notch higher in verse 9 by pleading with the Lord to not turn away from him. Don't leave me. Don't forsake me. We're not really sure why David is saying that. He will say that in Psalm 51 because he sinned. We're not really sure why he's saying that, but I think that's just the cry of a man who wants to be near God and hear God answer his prayers. Either way, David models what Jesus taught his disciples about persistent prayer. In Luke 11, starting in verses 5 to 11, he says, Which of you has a friend who will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, Do not bother me. The door is now shut, and my children are in bed with me. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though, he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend. Yet because of his persistence, 
He will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. And the one who seeks, finds. And the one who knocks, it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? God invites us to call upon him and not stop praying about whatever we need. And it appears that David understood by this confident assertion that God would never leave him, even if his closest family members did. Look at verse 10. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Now we have no, conf- we have no evidence in scripture that David's dad and mom ever abandoned him. The Hebrew there for, the conjunction there, can be translated with the idea of if and when. In other words, David is trying to say this, even if my mom and dad no longer claim me as my own or as their own, the Lord would take me in. He'd take care of me. Jesus told his disciples that following him would grant them eternal salvation. But as Chris read earlier from Matthew 10, it could cost you your closest relationships. Some of our enemies may even arise from our own household, Jesus said. And Jesus made it clear to be a disciple of Christ, your love for him must exceed your love for any of your family members. But brothers and sisters, we should never forget the doors of the kingdom of God are wider than the doors of your parents' house. Your parents or other family members and friends may disown you because you follow Christ, but Christ says you are welcome to feast with him at his table. Tonight, we will partake of the Lord's Supper together and remind ourselves again as followers of Jesus that our unity with other Christians is more eternally significant than the relationships you have with your biological family. Take great encouragement in that, that even if your house and home out there disowns you, you are welcome in the body of Christ. David prayed honestly and confidently, but he also prayed for God to guide him with wisdom. Look at verses 11 and 12. David realizes he doesn't have the power nor wisdom to outsmart and escape the traps of these evil men. And neither should we. Satan and his demons are quite crafty. And those who do not possess God's spirit are taken captive by the devil to do his will, to wreak havoc in the lives of Christ's sheep. So brothers and sisters, if you're in a tough situation at work or in your family where you know unbelievers are watching every move and wanting you to fail, you need to pray for God's wisdom to guide you every day. 
You need to seek counsel from other mature believers to help you remain shrewd as serpents, innocent as doves. Jesus told us to pray, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. When it comes to sin and satanic opposition, never trust yourself. Trust the Lord. You know it, Proverbs 3, 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And do not lean on your own understanding. Acknowledge him in all your ways, and he will make straight your paths. David prayed honestly and confidently for the Lord to guide him, but he also remained hopeful even when God made David wait for an answer. Which is our last question, question number three. What should you do until the Lord answers your prayer? What should you do? Until the Lord answers your prayer. That's verses 13 and 14. Answer, trust in God's goodness and wait patiently for him to act. David says in verse 13, I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Well, it begs the question, did God protect David? Was he indeed the stronghold, the refuge that David had hoped in after all? Absolutely. On a number of occasions, David's life was in danger, but the Lord protected him. One of the most insightful passages in all of David's life about the Lord's protection comes from 1 Samuel 23, verse 14. Listen to what it says. And David remained in the strongholds in the wilderness, in the hill country of the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul sought him every day, but God did not give him into his hand. Wow. Friends, the doctrine of God's sovereign care over his adopted children is the soft pillow for our faith to rest on. Jesus said in Matthew 10, 28 to 31, and do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Then not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father, but even the hairs of your head are all numbered. If you're missing it on top, facial hair probably counts. Fear not, therefore you are of more value than many sparrows. See, the Lord promises to be our light, our salvation, and our stronghold. And he does, and he will protect us from thousands of examples of evil every day of our life. However, being a follower of Jesus does not promise we will never suffer in this life. Evil men can hurt your body. But our God preserves your soul. You see, in this life, we actually live in the land of the dying. But in the life to come, we will dwell with Christ forever in the land of the living.
the prophet Isaiah says Christ was cut off for us in the land of the living. Isaiah 53.8. Christ was hated by his enemies without a cause. John 15.25. Christ was tempted by Satan himself, yet always relied on his father, never sinning even one time. Fellow Christian, God can and God does protect us from evil and danger at different times and in different ways. But in signing up to follow Jesus, you are also signing up to gain new enemies. But remember, your enemies and my enemies are not ultimately against us. They are against the one we represent, King Jesus. Remember Jesus' words in John 15, 18? If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. Our enemies could be unbelievers on the mission field. Many martyrs will meet in heaven. Our enemies could be members of our own household who oppose the name of Christ. And sometimes, sadly, our enemies are unregenerate church members who think they are Christians, but are not. They're doing the work of the devil in the Lord's church. So, what will keep us faithful through tribulation? God's goodness. What will keep us hopeful through seasons of suffering and loss? God's goodness. What will keep us focused on pursuing Christ is our number one ambition. God's goodness. What will strengthen our hearts as we wait on God in prayer. God's goodness. I want to challenge each one of us today. I really want you to do this. I think it would be a great exercise for our church. Take out a notebook. If you're more digital, get your laptop, phones, or whatever. I want you to write out 10 prayer requests that you have. Just 10, 10 things you can think of to pray. So David had his one thing. I'm going to say 10 things, okay? I want you to write down 10 prayer requests this year that you're asking the Lord and you persistently pray to him. You cry out to him, modeling what we have seen in Psalm 27. And one year from today, I want you to look back and to see what God has done with those prayer requests. How many of them did he answer? How many prayer requests did he change your heart about? And how many is he teaching you to wait upon? You might say, well, Brother Blake, what if I die before my prayer requests are answered? Then you get God. You get the fulfillment of verse 4. You get to see him face to face. You get to dwell in the house of the Lord forever. As Kevin DeYoung once said, the worst thing that can ever happen to a Christian is the best thing that could ever happen for a Christian. You get God. Either way, it's a win. Verse 14, wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Beloved, wait For the Lord, your waiting is not in vain. Let's pray. 
Father, you are our light and salvation. You are our stronghold. And through Christ, you are our gracious Heavenly Father. Lord, I pray that this year would be characterized by resolve, that each one of us would weigh out eternity, weigh out who you are against our enemies, and the delight that awaits us if we pursue you with all our might. Lord, we love you, and we pray that you would apply what we've heard today to our hearts and transform the rest of our life. In Jesus' name, amen.